Hi, my name is Amanda Panacea, and you're listening to the Healer Revolution podcast. This is a community for self-healers, biohackers, practitioners, and any other helping professionals. You're in the right place if you're seeking conversations about how pain becomes passion, the connection between physical, energetic, mental, and our spiritual self, finding your body's ancient wisdom, the latest biohacking technologies, clinical research, and if you just want to nerd out about complex biochemistry and quantum physics. But this is also for entrepreneurs who seek infinite abundance and a supportive community. So pour a cup of King Coffee or Sistus Tea and let's join the revolution. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Healer Revolution podcast. I am your host, Amanda Panacea. And today we are super excited because I finally got to interview one of my favorite teachers in one of my grad school programs at the University of Western States, the Masters of Science in Human Nutrition and Functional Medicine, no other than Dr. Heather Zwicky. She is an internationally recognized immunology speaker, researcher, and teacher. She has a PhD in immunology and microbiology from the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center with a focus on infectious disease. She also completed a postdoctoral fellowship and teach, teaches medical school at Yale University. She also launched the Health Got Research Institute, which studies the science of natural medicines. She also established the School of Graduate Studies, developing master's programs in research, nutrition, global health, among many others. She co-leads NIH-funded clinical research training programs, and she teaches at many universities and speaks at conferences worldwide. Some of her specific interests include the gut-brain access, neuroinflammation, and one of my personal favorites, psychoneuroimmunology. I really wanted her to have on the podcast because of this topic, psychoneuroimmunology, but also a brief rundown about how our immune system actually works. And I titled this podcast and why parasites are good for us because she's one of the only people I've ever heard speak about why we actually really need parasites. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Healer Revolution podcast. I am your host, Amanda Panacea, and today I am incredibly excited to be interviewing someone that I would consider a mentor, someone who taught me a lot, Dr. Heather Zwicky. Hi, Dr. Zwicky. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Amanda. It's so good to be on your podcast, and you can call me Heather. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I first met you when I was in the University of Western States Master's for Functional Medicine and Nutrition, and you taught all of the immunology courses. And I just felt like you were the best teacher. I had never explored the immune system in the way that you taught it. Um, and I'm really excited to hear also your story behind how you actually got into immunology and microbiology as well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I started out my life doing math. Um, I was a math undergrad and I thought I wanted to work for NASA for a while. Um, but at the same time, I had been raised by a biology teacher. So when time came around to start thinking about graduate school, 
I had a lot of experience in biology. I experimented with math graduate school and I thought, oh God, I can't do this the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so then I was trying to figure out, well, what field am I really passionate about? Because I actually like the systems. I like how the nervous system interacts with the immune system, which interacts with our endocrine system and our hormones and how that interacts with the microbiome. And what we often do in science is we are reductionistic. We break it down and we say, well, we're just going to study this protein in this system. When in reality, they're all interacting with each other. And that was the form of math that I did, um, chaos and complexity theory. So um, when I came time to say, well, am I going to study immunology or neurology or endocrinology? I picked immunology actually because of one of my personal heroes, Pippa Merrick, who was doing research at Denver. And I had seen her speak at the Nobel conference, which is a conference that happens every year in Minnesota um, where they bring in Nobel prize winners. And when I saw her speak, here was a woman who was doing high level science and really impressive things. And there weren't a lot of women in the field at that time. And, um, and she became a role model, somebody that I wanted to emulate. So I picked immunology um, for that reason. I also liked the idea of studying cancer and infectious disease and autoimmunity and all of these things that seem to be at the foundation of health. Um, so that's how I ultimately made the decision to become an immunologist. Um, there were a lot of other little factors that went into things, you know, um, my mom being a biology teacher was pivotal in my, I guess, experience and my education growing up. Um, so I was really comfortable with biological sciences. Although I have to say that when I got to graduate school, um, I discovered that I had never learned any genetics. And so when people said things like, Exxon, I thought about the Exxon Valdez, which was an oil <laughs> ship that sunk off the coast of Alaska. And I wasn't thinking about gene introns and exons. So I had to go back and learn a lot of the molecular biology and the genetics. But ultimately, it's been a fantastic journey. Amazing. And so did you have any health situations that kind of led you into this field or yeah. Yeah. I had health situations as did my family. So um, when I was in college, I was diagnosed with a teratoma, which is a particular type of tumor um, that comes from a germ cell. So in my case, it was an egg that popped from the ovary that was never fertilized, but grew out of control and was producing all sorts of hormones. And um, interestingly, um, I I had symptoms that were unusual. Um, and when they would try to put me on medication to control my symptoms, they made other symptoms appear. So like my vision was affected and whatnot. So ultimately I decided that I did, I did not want to do any more treatment while I was in college. And I was gonna wait till I graduated from college to treat my tumor and have the surgery that I should have had. Um, and you'll notice I said should have, because when I graduated from college, this was a time when health insurance um, didn't necessarily have to cover you if you had a pre-existing condition. And at that point, I had a pre-existing condition, which 
was a cancer. So I wasn't getting picked up by any health insurance companies. So I started treating myself and that's really where my interest in natural medicine came from. Um, I, I read in a funny story, I read in People magazine that Dirk Benedict, who was an actor at the time on the A-team and um, in Battlestar Galactica, and he had a similar tumor and he had used natural medicine, specifically hot springs and essential oils to treat his teratoma. So I thought, well, I don't have health insurance. I might as well try doing the same. So for two years, I was out of college and I hadn't yet started graduate school. And I started treating myself, going to hot springs in Colorado and using essential oils like cedarwood, sandalwood, buswellia, lang lang, et cetera. And um, when I got health insurance again, when I was a graduate student, the tumor was gone. And the physicians um, said, ooh, spontaneous remission. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? I worked my tail off to get this <laughs> yeah. thing to go away. So um, when we don't understand a mechanism for something, we often will say, ooh, it spontaneously happened. It just means that we can't explain it yet. But it does diminish what somebody might be doing actively to have an effect on that. So yeah, um, that personal experience absolutely influenced my uh, decision to do natural medicine um, with my immunology degree. That's amazing. Incredible story. And then, so what made you gravitate more into the research and teaching side of things as opposed to being a medical doctor treating people? Yeah, great question. So I looked at um, becoming a physician. In fact, my first year out of college, I applied to medical school and was accepted. And two weeks before I was supposed to go, I realized that I am not a good candidate for medicine. The reason is that I don't have good boundaries. What do I mean by that? I mean that if somebody is sick, I'm the person who wants to take them home and feed them soup on my couch. And um, I'm not a person who's e who can easily walk away from someone who is ill. I also recognized that in medicine, you're seeing people often on their worst days. And I am very much an optimist and um, have a very positive attitude. And I knew that that was going to be problematic for my mental health. So um, I did wanna make a change in the medical field. I, I do think we have a broken medical system. Um, and I every time I bring that up to politicians and people who have the ability to change it, um, the response that I get is, is disappointing. And so I thought, well, okay, this is something that I need to go in and start working on myself. But I recognized that in order to do that as an MD, I was going to have to actually see patients along the way. Whereas if I did it as a PhD, I could be outside the system, working on changing the system and building the evidence base to try to change our system. And when I say our system is flawed, what I mean by that is that within capitalism, currently the entire system benefits the sicker people are. Mm -hmm. So if someone is ill, then insurance companies make money. Um, pharmaceutical companies make money. Doctors make money. When someone is healthy, none of those things make money. So what I see happening is the system is set up not to cure people, but to treat them. Um, 
but if they're cured, then the system doesn't make money. So we need to restructure our medical system within capitalism so that capitalism makes money when people are healthy instead of when people are ill. Um, and I didn't know how to do that um, as a physician in the system. I, I don't know how to do it as a PhD outside the system, but I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> Yeah, I totally resonate. I, I was at first a licensed mental health counselor in psychiatric facilities. And I was like, this is barbaric. I have to do something else. Like I'm never going to make a difference. And these people are going to get worse and worse. We're opening more wings. Every psychiatric hospital is flourishing because we don't do anything to actually get to the root of, of the suffering. And so that's when I took the functional medicine program. And at that point afterwards, I was like, I'm not getting a license. I'm not following any state regulations. <laughs> I'm going to do this my way. And yeah. even if I'm just one person, you know, it's a drop in the bucket, I guess. Well, something's got to, sh something's got to shift, right? Because yeah. we know that um, our current medical system is bankrupting people. It's also bankrupting the system. Um, and um and it's not providing health. The United States is what, number 28 in the world in terms of our, our medical uh, care. And, you know, the US, we like to say we're number one, but we are very far <laughs> from number one. We're not even in the top 10. We're not even in the top 20. I mean, our medical system is broken. And yeah. it, it's not saying that there aren't good hearted physicians out there and really smart people in medicine. The incentives are all wrong. And you know, what can we expect? Right. And I think we really saw that in 2020 and now people are realizing it big time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, it's, it's interesting because we heard a lot about, um, you know, people who passed away and got very sick and even people who continue to have post COVID. What we didn't hear about are all of the people who were bankrupted by their partner having COVID and dying in the hospital. Um, and there are a lot of people out there, uh, including members of my family. So, um, you know, there's there's part of this journey that we've all been on together that has been hidden, I think, from the public. And until we start making all of that public, we're really not going to change the system. The other thing is, you know, that people spend 80% of their healthcare dollars in the last 10% of their life. That's crazy, right? I mean, that's again, it's just something that we need to think about. Like we should be paying attention to prevention so that we're actually spending that money up front so we get to enjoy our life and we don't actually have all of the myriads of aches and illnesses and mental health issues that prevent us from enjoying a, a happy life. Yeah, totally agree. All of my healthcare is out of pocket, even though I have health insurance, I don't use it at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky. I live in a state where naturopathic medicine, Chinese medicine, chiropractic medicine, all, all is covered um, by health insurance. But again, if you look at the, um, the coverage, it's kind of pathetic. Um, <laughs> you know, like, Whereas a conventional physician might get paid $300 for an office visit, a naturopathic physician might only make 50. So we're clearly valuing one form of education over another, even though both 
forms of education require a four-year medical degree, licensing exams, residency, like they are at the same level of rigor and yet we're willing to pay one more than we're willing to pay the other. And yet, you know, they do very different things. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this took a turn I didn't expect, but I really like this topic. So I'm glad you pulled it, <laughs> you brought it up. Yeah. Um, but what I really wanted to talk to you about was definitely the topic of psychoneuroimmunology and basically what this means in general, because you were the first person I ever heard use that term. And so when I am talking about like the rest of my guests, we talk a lot about spirituality and perceptions and not just regular stress on the body, but your perceived stressors and how much that impacts the way your organs function and your immune system reacts to things. So I see people one-on-one usually dealing with chronic illnesses. And I'll usually see people who have, you know, been treating Lyme for 10 years, dealing with mold illness for five, six years, and they have yet to really address that nervous system component. So what is psychoneuroimmunology? Oh, psychoneuroimmunology is a fantastic hangman word because most people won't get it. Um, It is the combination of systems. So when I said that I am passionate about how systems interact with each other, psychoneuroimmunology is how your mental health is affected by your nervous system and your immune system. And often we group the endocrine system and the microbiome in there, but the word we become unpronounceable. <laughs> so psychoneuroimmunoendocrinology microbiology. I don't know. <laughs> so we leave it at psychoneuroimmunology, but literally it is how your mental health is affected by all of these other things that are going on in your body. And I think a lot of times people don't recognize that when you're having an immune reaction or you're having a hormone cycle, that it is going to have an effect on your mood and how you feel and your personality. And, um, and we now are starting to have clues as to why. So we have started figuring out the mechanism for why when you get sick, you might start feeling depressed or why when you eat a certain food, you might start feeling content. Um, like we now know a lot of these pathways. That's, that's really incredible. So can you give us just like a general rundown of how the immune system works, like some basic terminology? Sure. So most people know terminology for our hormones, right? We've Mm -hmm. heard of hormones. Well, the immune system has an equivalent. It's called cytokines, C-Y-T-O, cyto, K-I-N-E, kinds. And cytokines and hormones are kind of the equivalent. So whereas your endocrine system is making hormones, your immune system is making cytokines. And the cytokines are what communicate with the rest of your body. So for example, when you get sick or when you get a vaccine, we inject that vaccine into your arm and you start making cytokines. And those cytokines are going to be what cause inflammation. So um, for example, there's a cytokine called interleukin-1, which is abbreviated IL-1. And when you start to get sick, IL-1, it's made usually by a macrophage or 
um, another cell and it goes to your hypothalamus, which sits here at the back of your brain, and it tells your body to increase your body temperature, so give you a fever. But IL-1 also has another function. IL-1 also has what we call a sickness behavior function, meaning that it's designed to help you slow down and go back to bed. And so it causes malaise and depression, and it makes you tired and want to sleep. And the idea is that when you make IL-1, your body is preparing for illness. And so if you go to bed, you're conserving all the protein that you would usually use to make all sorts of other proteins in your muscles and whatnot, but you can serve it for the immune system so that the immune system can use that protein to make antibodies and to make T cells and to respond to an infection. So you make IL-1 and immediately upon making IL-1, you start feeling, oh, I feel sick. You probably recognize what a lot of people were experiencing when they got a COVID vaccine. They started feeling like, oh, I don't feel very good. And then the second thing that they felt was, oh, my arm hurts. I have all sorts of pain in my arm. And that's a second cytokine. That cytokine is IL-6, interleukin-6, IL-6. And interleukin-6 also has uh, an effect on your body. It also is affecting the hypothalamus and helping prepare your body for infection. But in addition, it makes you feel anxious. It makes you feel like, I can't be sick right now. Like, I have all these other things going on. I, I, this is not a good time for me to be sick. I was just talking to a friend yesterday and um, she's done immunology with me as well. And, uh, and she's a physician, but she's also a long distance runner. And she said lately she's been increasing her distance. And she finds that when she increases her distance, she starts to catastrophize as she's running. And, you know, she's at mile 22 and she's like, somebody's going to hit me with their car and then I'm going to fall into the ditch and then nobody's going to find me and I'm going to rot in this ditch. And then she says, and then I stop and go, wait, that's aisle six. And I'm overextending my body such that I'm creating inflammation and my body's making IL-6 and that's why I'm catastrophizing about getting hit by a car. And so we can start to recognize the IL-6 anxiety. And the interesting thing about that is that IL-6, in addition to causing pain and anxiety, it's bi-directional. So when you just get anxious because, I don't know, because they're, they shut down your favorite bar because there's a pandemic and now you're like, what am I going to do? Your body immediately makes IL-6. So it's this bi-directional thing where if you're getting sick, you make IL-6 and you feel anxious, or if you feel anxious, you make IL-6 and then you have inflammation. And then the third cytokine that we talk about in this respect is TNF-alpha. TNF stands for tumor necrosis factor. So it was discovered because it could kill tumors. But it turns out that its sickness behavior, its mood altering behavior is hostility and aggression. So you might think, wait, why would I want to be aggressive if I'm sick? Like that doesn't make sense, right? And yet I'm sure you know people who are aggressive when they're sick. Like I know people who, where I'm like, whoa, what's up? And then I'm like, oh, they're probably getting sick. Um, 
so where we see TNF alpha show up a lot is with um, injury. And if you think about it, you know, a lot of times we think about the immune system and our evolution of our immune system as, you know, we were running from the lion and, and if the lion catches us, then what's going to happen is it's going to take its claws and come down our skin. And so we need inflammation happening in our skin. But the other big thing that we have evolved um, to respond to is battle. And when we would go to battle, we would get injured. And so TNF alpha seems to be responsible for that hostility and aggression that we might experience during battle. And then it is preparing our body for injury as opposed to infection. It's made in both scenarios, but we see it in, in people who are aggressive and hostile. We can measure it in people who are playing rugby two hours before their rugby match. So just the idea of working themselves up for a match their body starts to produce TNF-alpha. It's preparing for injury. We also see higher TNF-alpha in people who are in hostile marriages. Um, we see high TNF-alpha in stockbrokers who are on the floor, who are you know, aggressively shoving each other out of the way. So, um, so I don't think most people think about the fact that aggression can be related to their immune system. I think they think of aggression as a personality character flaw, um, mm -hmm. when in reality, it can be totally related to something that your body is doing um, because, you know, we haven't had rugby for 200 years. We have, like, but we have had war. And so what we have evolved for, for is battle and war, not for our current version of war, which might be cutting in front of somebody in the parking lot at a grocery store. You know, like our version has, cha has changed and yet our bodies haven't changed and our bodies are ready for fight or flight or freeze or fawn for trauma. Our body's ready for trauma and it's having an effect on our, on our mental health as well. Have you had to give up coffee for health reasons? Maybe because of the stress it was putting on your adrenals. Maybe because it was messing with your sleep. Maybe because you felt terrible after drinking it. Or maybe because you were told coffee had mold on the beans and you needed to stay away from mold. Well, what if I told you there's an organic, mycotoxin-free, quality coffee that contains reishi spores or Ganoderma lucidum? Ganoderma lucidum helps to modulate your immune system, adapt to stress, balance hormones, and doesn't give you the jitters or shakes like regular coffee used to. Sounds too good to be true, right? It's called King Coffee by the company Organo. And King Coffee came into my life when I was struggling with chronic hives, full body eczema, and mast cell activation syndrome. I hadn't drank coffee in years because it made me feel anxious, shaky, and clammy. So I had no expectations that drinking King Coffee would be any different. However, I decided to give it a try after seeing lots of amazing practitioners talk about the benefits of Reishi online. I tried a seven-day sample and the chronic hives were gone by day five. I was in shock. After that, I dove into the research on Reishi and found that there are over 3,000 peer-reviewed PubMed clinical trials using Reishi Ganoderma as an intervention. The company Organo also has a patent protected on their harvesting process 
They double crack open the spore shells, which makes them up to 80% more potent than the body of the reishi, which is usually used in other reishi products. This also makes the spores 90% more bioavailable for your body to use. If you would like to try King Coffee, visit thehealerrevolution.myorganogold.com or for a seven-day trial, you can check out my link tree on my Instagram at Amanda Panacea. When I first heard you talking about the sickness behaviors, I just burst into tears because I was like, this is every, every person with any sort of mental health symptom is dealing with this on some level. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the crazy thing is that we, we know this pathway, we've known this pathway for almost 25 years now, like it back in the 1990s is when we figured this out. And yet we haven't been very good about sharing that with the public because we still say, Oh, you're depressed. Oh, here, let's give you an antidepressant. We don't say, wait, that might mean you have some inflammation. So let's talk about where that inflammation could be coming from. And then this is where the microbiome really starts to play a role because often for people, the inflammation is coming from their gut. It's coming from the fact that they're eating the wrong foods and those foods are causing inflammation and such as such, they are depressed or as such, they are anxious or they're aggressive and hostile. Yeah. And I heard you say something once uh, about probiotics that we didn't use to just eat little capsules of bacteria. (laughs) True. And I thought that was so funny because tell, talk to us about the big changes in the microbiome and why so many people are having these, these gut brain and access symptoms. Sure. So first let's just say the microbiome um, is all of the microbes that live all over your body and you have a gut microbiome, you have a skin microbiome, you have a lung microbiome, a mouth microbiome. If you're female, you might have a vagina microbiome, et cetera. So there's microbes everywhere. Now, it turns out that the gut microbiome co-localizes with your immune system. 80% of your immune system is in your gut. So anytime your microbes in your gut change their behavior, it changes the behavior of the immune system. So let's talk about what are those microbes in your gut doing? They are happy, healthy little beings that are digesting all of the food that you are eating. And when they digest that food, they produce what we call metabolites or the new name for metabolites is postbiotics. So prebiotics is the food, probiotics are live microbes, and postbiotics are the things those microbes produce when they eat food. Okay, so how are the microbes being affected? Well, let's let's first talk about our food and our food supply. We have moved from us harvesting food out of a garden and maybe we wash the food, but there's probably always still a little bit of dirt on it where we were constantly introducing new microbes to our system those microbes don't usually take up residence. They move right through your system and out, but they are producing postbiotics. So you do get the benefit of those microbes eating food along with the food that you are feeding them. So think about 
fermented foods like kombucha and sauerkraut and yogurt, which have microbes in them. Those microbes are constantly digesting that food and you're getting the benefit of them digesting that food every time you eat those foods. One of the things that's happened in our food supply is we've started using significant pesticides on our foods. And the pesticides are designed to kill off microbes in weeds. And that's how those weeds die because they no longer have a microbiome. And so then they will pass, pass away. The problem is if they can kill microbes in the soil and microbes in weeds, then they can also kill microbes in you. So when we eat foods with pesticides, we are killing off some of those microbes in our microbiome. Likewise, preservatives in food. What are preservatives designed to do? They're designed to help it so the food doesn't spoil. In other words, they're killing any microbes that are in the food so that the food doesn't spoil. And if they're going to kill the microbes in the food, they're going to kill the microbes in you too. So we know that there are certain things in our food supply that are absolutely killing our microbes. We also selectively choose to kill our microbes. So we get a upper respiratory infection and we put somebody on antibiotics. Antibiotics kill off those microbes and it's not selective, right? So it's going to kill off more microbes than those microbes that you were exposed to um, that made you have an upper respiratory infection. The problem is when we kill off the microbes, then they're not around to make postbiotics and it's the postbiotics that are affecting the immune system. So your immune system doesn't function correctly if your microbes are dead and dying. Instead of mounting a normal healthy immune response, you mount inflammation and inflammation is interleukin-1, interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha. So you start killing off these microbes in your gut either by chemicals in the food that you're eating or just even eating poor food choices. I'm going to say it the nice way. Um, I just had a conversation this morning with some of my friends about corn nuts and that <laughs> corn nuts are not nuts, that they are deep fried corn. <laughs> I'm like, probably shouldn't eat those. But, you know, so you, we make choices about all the foods that we want to eat and the foods that we're eating right now are causing those three cytokines that cause depression, anxiety, and hostility in droves. So we're eating foods that lead to the production of things that make us feel terrible. And then we try to fix feeling terrible with a drug rather than changing our diet. Um, and it becomes a whole cycle. Yeah. <laughs> and something else, another cycle I tend to see with people is, is almost the opposite where they become so obsessed with eating healthy that they're, they have now food fear and food anxiety and reactions if they eat anything remotely unhealthy. Um, so that kind of goes on that psychoneuroimmunology topic of our nervous system and what we perceive to be healthy. Let's say it's a donut, you know, is eating a donut that bad every once in a while, or is your fear of the donut going to be worse for you? Yeah. So remember that relationship is bi-directional. So if you fear a donut or you fear that somebody spiked your tea with sugar or something like that, you're going to produce the IL-6, which is worse than just, you know, occasionally eating your donut and then following it up with some vegetables, right? So 
we can make up for a lot of our errors by eating some healthy foods, um, which yes, vegetables are a big one, but spices, and I think we don't talk enough about spices. Spices have enormous impact on our microbiome and therefore our immune system. And it's like people walk into my kitchen and I have I have spices above the stovetop and then I have a whole wall that just has full of different spices and they're like, do you use all of those? <laughs> yeah, I do. I cook with spice because it's good for you and it's good for your microbiome. Um, teas are another good thing that like really good for you, really good for your microbes, really good for your immune system and, you know, often ignored by like 70 to 80% of our population. So yeah, it's, it, I would much rather have you eat a donut and then drink a cup of tea to, you know, help with anything, any damage you might've done than to catastrophize over what is a donut going to do to you? Cause the orthorexia is worse. Yeah, I totally agree. And so let's go back to the immune system, but let's talk about, so what I went through with my health, big health crisis was mast cell activation syndrome and an extreme TH2 dominance. And I tend to see this a lot, <laughs> maybe yeah. because I went through it or, and I'm talking oh, about it a lot. More more so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So explain what's happening with mast cell activation and what a TH2 dominance is. Sure. So your immune system is balanced between, um, what historically was a response to bacteria and viruses on one side versus a response to worms on the other side. And it's a balancing, it's like a seesaw. So if you are TH1 dominant, so that's literally the letters T and H and the number one, then that means that you make really good responses to um, viruses and bacteria. If you were TH2 dominant historically, it meant you you made really good responses to worms. But what's happening in the industrialized world is we have gotten rid of worms. And so the TH2 response is no longer responding to worms because we don't have them. And instead, it has redirected itself and it responds to what we call innocuous antigens, things like birch pollen, ragweed pollen, cat dander, all of those things that people have allergies to. So when you're TH2 dominant, it means that you are, you know, really, really good at making this one type of response to something that we don't actually have in our body anymore, which is a worm. So you're responding to all sorts of things in your environment that are not dangerous. So your immune system is um, confused because it thinks it's doing the right thing. It's mounting a response, but it's mounting it to the wrong antigens or the wrong proteins. So what do we do about that? I mean, we've got all of these people who, oh, so as part of the TH2 response, at the end of the response, you activate what are called mast cells. And the mast cells are what most people know of as what cause allergies. They release things like histamine and histamine causes hives if it's in your skin. It causes your nose to run if it's in your nose. It causes you to have diarrhea if it's in your gut. Histamine in general is um, a pain in the in the patootie. Okay, so what do we do about that? 
Well, there are antihistamines out there, but most people who have mast cell activation syndrome make so much histamine that antihistamines just really don't cut it and it puts them to sleep. So you can't function if you're living, trying to live on antihistamines. We have things like quercetin, which is a substance that's in foods and spices. Um, so it's in chocolate and coffee. And I mean, heck, you even find quercetin in fruits and vegetables, just at much smaller amounts. But it turns out that quercetin is really good at dampening that TH2 response. And it may actually help people who have mast cell activation syndrome because it reduces the production of the antibody that causes the mast cells to degranulate. It also stabilizes that mast cell uh, membrane so that the mast cell can't degranulate as quickly. But, you know, some of the more radical treatments for mast cell activation syndrome is to give people worms because that's why we have an overactive TH2 response is those cells don't have anything else to respond to. So they're responding to their environment. If you give them the worms to respond to, we see that the mast cells respond to the worms and the, act, the mast cell activation factor goes away. That being said, not currently legal to give worms <laughs> as a therapy in the United States. So I know several people who have gone to other countries to pick up some intestinal worms or who have gotten them on the black market um, to take care of their mast cell activation syndrome. Well, you could just eat salmon. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Or walk barefoot in Africa. Yeah. <laughs> you will have worms. <laughs> See, this is interesting because I definitely did have worms. I, I did lots of parasite cleansing and a lot of the clients I work with also have like, I literally saw worms after doing coffee enemas and things like that. So what about like the amoeba parasites? How do they fit into this, this puzzle? Yeah. So amoeba is interesting. So first of all, some of the parasites are normal, right? Like we all have them and one of their jobs is to keep the diversity of our microbiome intact. Um, but the type of immune response that you mount to an amoeba is not the same. It's a Th17 immune response versus this Th2 response. So worms are interesting. Your immune system is trying to get rid of the worm, which is why it's mounting a Th2 response. Like it's designed to keep those worms from overgrowing and um, causing an infection in you. But the worms want to stay. And so what they do when they get inside the gut is they start spitting and their saliva causes what we call a T regulatory response. And so it shuts down the TH2 response in the gut because that's going to keep the worm safe. It's going to keep the immune system from getting it expelled. So the worm gets in the gut and starts, you know, spitting out saliva to cause us to not respond to worm. Interesting. So there's this dynamic um, interaction that's happening between you and the worm where you're trying to clear it by mounting more of a TH2 response. So you might still see that mast cell activation, but then once the worm starts spitting and it makes itself at home, then we drive this response that shuts down both TH1 and TH2. The issue is striking that balance with worm therapy. Mm, and we have different responses to different types of worms. So there's two different types of worms that are used therapeutically. Um, Nate, uh, Decatur Americanus and 
can't remember the second one right now, but those are like, we don't, we don't suggest that people take um, all sorts of different types of worms. Yeah. A particular worm. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And if you get a worm infection, you typically are going to have hundreds to thousands of worms in your gut. Usually when worms are used therapeutically, they're only given at, you know, like three to six worms. So very Mm -hmm. different types of responses that are happening. Yeah. And so something else that that I struggle with is how we really don't have good testing for parasites. Um, So we would never know truly like our parasite biome. (laughs) Not yet. We don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that as we're learning more and more about the microbiome and about how much of a role it's playing in our health, we're developing better tests. So one of the things that happened in the last 10 years is that we used to um, to learn about the microbiome. We would harvest people's stool and then we would plate it like we did in micro lab when we were in high school. And we would look at all the different colonies of bacteria. The problem is most of the microbes in our gut are anaerobic, meaning they do not um, respond to oxygen. They do not live well in oxygen. So they weren't growing when we were plating them. What we've moved to now is we actually measure the DNA in those microbes. And by looking at the DNA, we can say, oh, this microbe is here and this microbe is here and this microbe is here. And now that we're looking at a DNA-based measurement, we'll be able to measure more parasites. Um, But historically, we couldn't grow them. Um, You know, Giardia doesn't like to grow in a dish. So if you happen to see it come out in your stool, then you were like, oh, there it is, right? I, I see actually a Giardia and I see a Giardia egg suggesting it's reproducing in my gut. On the other hand, um, now we can actually genetically say, oh, look, Giardia is there and amoeba is there and blastocystis is there and whatnot. Yeah. Mm. Good. That's one of the biggest holes I feel like we have is, is understanding what's going on with parasites in our body. I agree. But I also think that we are we're at the same place with parasites now that we were with microbes about 30 years ago, where we were like microbes, bad, kill them. And let's give everybody an antibiotic and kill all the microbes. We know that there are, this is what we, what we know. We know there are 23,000 types of parasites that live in your gut. That's a lot, right? 23,000 types. That's not the total number. That's like just the classes of parasites. And how many of those are dangerous that we don't know? Like we know that there are, you know, something like 400,000 species of bacteria that live in your gut. And of those 60 are dangerous. That's a very small percentage. Are we looking at the same with parasites where of these 23,000, two are dangerous? Or is it more like 5,000 are dangerous? Like We don't know yet we're still at that state of, um, discovery right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Um, cause I also work with a lot of people who obsessively parasite cleanse and cause they keep seeing them. They'll, yeah. they keep going cause they keep seeing them. And I'm like, 
you need to take a break. This is very stressful. You'll never get rid of all of them. No. And furthermore, you don't want to, because we yeah. know that some of the, some of the job that the parasite is doing in the gut is keeping different microbes from overgrowing different bacteria and yeast. So you might get rid of the parasites and then you get a terrible yeast infection because the parasite was keeping that yeast from overgrowing. You know, I think we're going to learn some of the same lessons we've managed to eradicate worms. And when we eradicated worms, we got mast cell activation syndrome and autoimmunity. Frankly, yeah. I would rather deal with worms than <laughs> an autoimmune disease or mast cell activation syndrome, right? So um, the idea that we think that we can eliminate a microbe and still be in balance, that's not logical anymore. We, mm -hmm. we know that that's not what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so let's, let's talk about autoimmunity. What are some of the ways that we develop autoimmunity? Oh, many, many ways. <laughs> there are many ways. So um, <laughs> I just did a talk this weekend on trauma and how trauma contributes to autoimmunity. Certainly we see that um, childhood trauma is, and adult trauma, but um, both are being studied, contributes to the development of autoimmune disease. Um, with childhood trauma, it's a trauma within two years. Um, will lead to an autoimmune diagnosis. Um, and you mean of two years of age, like under two no, years old? I mean, if you are diagnosed, for example, with type one diabetes at age five, they can go back and find a trauma that happened mm. between age three and age five. Okay. And usually it's um, a, a minimum of six months out because it just takes that long to develop um, the cells that are attacking the pancreas. So trauma is um, now been linked to just about every autoimmune disease, and that is psychological trauma. And it doesn't matter whether it's a big T trauma or a little T trauma, right? So big T trauma would be like terrorism or your house burning down. Little T trauma might be experiencing bullying. They both contribute to the develop of, development of autoimmune disease. Then the second major thing that's contributing to the development of autoimmune disease is um, infection. So we can often pinpoint an infection that someone had, like a really bad flu, or um, you know, I'll, I'll say it, COVID, um, that has led to an autoimmune disease. We call that the bystander effect meaning that your immune system is trying to fight the infection and it ends up killing some self-tissue in the process. And if you don't have a good population of these cells that we call T-regulatory cells, that those cells in the gut that I was telling you about, if you don't have a good population of those, that, that attack of self-tissue can just keep going. It can keep perpetuating. So really good benefit to have those cells in your gut be happy, which means you've got to keep those microbes in your gut happy. Then the third mechanism we call molecular mimicry, meaning that you have a protein in your body that looks like a protein that your immune system has looked at and said, wait, that's not me. And that might be dangerous. So the best example of that is people who develop celiac disease 
um, where their body is trying to attack gluten. And in doing so, it attacks a self protein called tissue transglutaminase. And so they end up attacking their gut and attacking their skin when really all they were trying to do was get rid of this one protein from gluten. Um, so, so all of those things can lead to autoimmunity, but you also have to have the right genetic background. So family history, and you also have to have um, what we call uh, an error in tolerance. So when your immune cells are developing, they go through this, this um, college where they go, wait, I need to be able to attack things that are foreign and I need to be able to leave things that are me alone. They do that in the thymus, which is this little organ that sits above your heart for your T cells. And as they're coming through the thymus, they say, well, if I react to Heather, then I'm going to kill myself. And if I don't react to Heather, then I get out into the periphery. So there, there's a flaw if those cells actually get out into the periphery and they can attack me. So then we have to have these peripheral mechanisms to keep those cells under control. And that's where those T regulatory cells come into play. They, they will keep those cells under control if you have a good diet, meaning you got all the right vitamins and all the right um, minerals and you're eating a diverse diet with all sorts of different um, plants and plant-based foods. And then you get a good population. And even if you start to mount an autoimmune reaction, your other T cells, those T regulatory cells can shut it down. Got it. So that was kind of my next question. How do we have a good T regulatory response? You, you mentioned uh, diets, obviously really important. Yep. So what we know for sure is vitamin D, super important. If you haven't had your vitamin D levels tested, go do that. Vitamin A, another really important mineral. Most people think, oh, well, I get enough vitamin A in my diet, but we are starting to see that with depletion of the soil, we're not getting good vitamin A in our diet anymore. And you might need to actually supplement some vitamin A. We also see good T regulatory production with a particular type of probiotic, um, specifically by phytobacterium strains. So when you look at your bottle of your probiotics and it all says lactobacillus this and lactobacillus that and lactobacillus this, Lactobacillus sometimes will get you T regulatory cells, but the bifidobacterium where it says like B in front of the, the word. So bifidobacterium brevet, bifidobacterium adolescentis, all of those are really good at helping drive a T regulatory response. And then fish oil. So making sure you have um, a good source of omega-3 fatty acids. If you're vegetarian and you don't eat fish oil, that's okay. Then use evening primrose oil or borage oil. Um, but those oils that have good omega-3s, if you don't want the oil themselves, then just go take an omega-3 fatty acid supplement. Um, and they don't have to taste like fish oil anymore. I just got this really fun. I, I always test things out myself. And so I just got this, um, Nordic naturals is making their gummies for fish oil. Um, and they taste like orange, orange gummies. So, um, 
you know, I didn't like fish oil myself. Um, and I was taking an omega-3 capsule, which was like a horse pill. It was like this huge <laughs> capsule. Now I get to have it in a gummy. I'm much happier. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, lots of good ways to get T regulatory cells. Awesome. And then just going kind of back to trauma, how do you think trauma causes this autoimmune reaction? Do you know yeah. exactly? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, Cause I just gave a talk on this. So the yeah, mechanism, so interested. <laughs> the mechanism actually goes back to that interleukin six. So it turns out that there are two different ways that we can get um, the cells that cause autoimmunity. And these cells are called Th17 cells. One of them is if our macrophages or dendritic cells produce a particular cytokine called IL-23, and they might do that in response to a parasite. Um, so this is why we think like Lyme um, can lead to autoimmunity is through IL-23 production from the Lyme disease. But there's a second mechanism by which you can get these IL-17 producing T cells. And that is if you combine interleukin-6 and interleukin-1 together, so remember that's anxiety and depression, you combine those along with another cytokine, which is very common, it's called IL-21, and you get an IL-17 response. So when you have a massive trauma, it causes this big stress response and you respond with IL-6, right? Because you're anxious and you might respond with IL-1 too, if it makes you depressed. And it turns out that that combination in concert with not having T regulatory cells can lead to the production of these TH17 cells. Wow. That's so fascinating. Yeah. It makes it really important for us to have skills in resilience, right? Because mm -hmm. then if you experience a trauma, you might have anxiety for a little bit and then your resilience kicks in and your anxiety starts to calm and whatnot. We also have herbs that will reduce interleukin-6. Um, for example, feverfew, lemon balm, you know, there are um, curcumin. There's lots of herbs out there that also reduce IL-6 but we can't just let IL-6 run rampant because it will contribute to autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a huge part of my practice. I started combining my therapy license with the functional medicine and I'll, I'll not only work with people on herbs and supplements and diets, but so much of it is mindset, subconscious work, our perceptions. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, you know, people don't understand that their immune system is responding to how they think. Um, okay. I mean, it's not intuitive, right? Like I wouldn't have thought of that if I wasn't an immunologist, but <laughs> we can actually stimulate your immune response really quickly. If you close your eyes and you think about something that makes you happy for five seconds, turns out that you stimulate the production of IgA in your saliva, which is going to prevent you getting upper respiratory infections. And yet how often do people do that? Like they should be doing it every day. Every morning when you wake up, you should just close your eyes, think about puppies, think <laughs> about bunnies, whatever it is that makes you happy for five seconds. And you are going to reduce your incidence of infection. We yeah. could have done that during COVID. We Instead, have, yeah. we're getting numbers of people dying and things that were making us catastrophize even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And 
that that's kind of leads me to another question I have. Um, I remember you when one of the lectures that you gave, you talked about why people get sick on vacation. Ah, yes. So um, one of the hormones that we make is called cortisol. And some people have heard of cortisol because they get corticosteroid injections to help with their pain. Well, it turns out that cortisol can be immunosuppressive um, or it can suppress the T regulatory cells, in which case it can allow other parts of your immune system to go haywire. But the big thing with cortisol that we talked about in class is that Cortisol is the hormone that causes any cells that are auto-reactive to off themselves in the morning. So remember those T cells are developing in your flat bones and then they go through your thymus. And then if they've determined that they're auto-reactive, when your cortisol peaks in the morning to wake you up, it's what like, boom, makes your eyes open. At the same time, you're killing any auto-reactive cells. And then your cortisol goes down the rest of the day and it happens the same the next day. So what happens to people who don't have a cortisol peak? Maybe they don't have a cortisol peak because um, genetically there's something wrong. Maybe there's a disease that process that's reduced their cortisol peak. But if they don't have a cortisol peak, then more autoreactive cells make it into the periphery. Here's the other time when cortisol is really active. It's really active when you're stressed. So if you're working towards a big deadline and you're like, got to get through, like I am right now, we've got four grants going out in the next week and it's finals and I have to grade 200 papers. And I'm like, oh my God, I have just got to get through June 24th graduation, get those grants out the door and then I can relax. And I guarantee you, my cortisol is high. And as soon as my cortisol drops, now my immune system can go into activity again. When cortisol is high, it's suppressing my immune system. So as soon as my cortisol drops, my immune system will get active and I will clear anything that I have encountered in the last two weeks. And likely I will get sick. So we see this a lot where people will be working towards a big deadline. They go on vacation and then they get sick because finally their immune system is allowed to be active again. <laughs> so this is where I have all these people who will brag to me, I haven't been sick in two years. And I'm like, that's actually not a good thing. <laughs> it means your cortisol is probably pretty high and you're stressed. Um, we actually, it's healthy for us to get a little bit sick two or three times a year as an adult. Um, we say for an adult, it's somewhere between two and four times a year. And for a kid, it's about eight times a year doesn't mean it should knock you down and you should be, you know, flat on your back in bed for a month, but those 24 hour flus, you should have those a couple of times a year. Mm. Yeah. That's something I haven't dealt with after my mast cell, um, years, I guess I'm, I no longer, so you probably don't get sick. That. I don't get sick anymore No, because you're more TH2 like than TH1 like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm working on it. I'm still working on it. Good. So I could probably ask you a million more questions, but I will respect your time since it is the end of June, <laughs> but I would love to know some of the big things you're working on behind the scenes, maybe some big projects or some big shifts you've seen in, in our medical system. Yeah. So lots of things that, um, I'm working on right now with my students and postdocs and whatnot. One of the 
one of the interesting projects that's happening right now is I have a postdoc who's working on rheumatoid arthritis. And one of the things that we've discovered, not that we've discovered, that science has discovered, is that people with rheumatoid arthritis are often missing a particular microbe. And it's a microbe that makes a postbiotic that's anti-inflammatory. So if you were to feed those people a really healthy diet, it wouldn't matter because they're missing the microbe that makes the anti-inflammatory component, which is called urolithin A. So we're trying to figure out how do you get that microbe back? Mm. Like if, if it's gone, we know that feeding won't work because this is an anaerobic microbe and you would have to expose the microbe to oxygen. So how do you get those microbes back when they're missing? Which I think is really interesting. Um, I've got another student also working with rheumatoid arthritis, but working at the level of the trauma impact. And so um, one of the things that's interesting in the psychoneuroimmunology world is, are there certain traumas that lead more towards MS or a different one leads towards diabetes or a different one leads towards um, polycystic ovary syndrome or et cetera, rheumatoid arthritis. And so she's um, working with a bunch of psychologists um, and mental health experts to see are there particular, because we know that people with rheumatoid arthritis have more trauma in their family history than people who do not have rheumatoid arthritis. There's been good case control studies to show that. Um, I've got another student who's looking at doshas. So this is Ayurvedic medicine and the tridoshas. So you've got pitta, kapha, and vata. And he's looking at whether or not there's different microbiome signatures that characterize somebody who's going to be more heavy, like a kapha phenotype, versus people who might be more pitta, more fire-based. Um, and um, that's a cross-sectional study. Um, yeah, just, I, there's so much interesting stuff that's happening right now. Um, I have another student who's looking at acupuncture for asthma. Um, we know that acupuncture can have an effect on that TH2 response that you're experiencing, um, shuts down the cytokines that are produced. And so hypothetically, it's going to work well for asthma too, but nobody's actually studied acupuncture for asthma, which I'm not quite oh. sure why. Yeah. So, yeah. Seems like a no brainer, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But lots of different fun things happening. Amazing. Yeah. Those all sound really interesting. Yeah. So final also question. At, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Also looking at postbiotics as a whole for people with Parkinson's. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we know that fecal transplant can actually be good for people with Parkinson's um, from studies that were done in China and Israel, but fecal transplant in the United States is only allowed to be used for C. difficile infection. So there are groups now that are working on a fecal transplant that's sterilized. So it only has postbiotics in it. There's no live bacteria. Can it have the same benefit that we see with the fecal transplants from the folks from Israel and China but we can actually use it in the United States. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm kind of waiting around for when fecal transplants are going to be more popular. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they did a really interesting study. Um, what I guess it was last, was it last year? It might have been two years ago now. Um, 
no, it was last year, it was October of 2022, where it was published, but um, they did fecal transplant for aging. So they took the fecal transplant from a young mouse and then put it in an old mouse and looked for effects and then vice versa. But if you take the fecal matter from a young mouse and put it in an old mouse, can you guess what the first thing to heal is? The thymus. Eyes. Oh, interesting. Macular degeneration. And likewise, if you take the fecal matter from an old mouse and put it in a young mouse, the young mouse develops all sorts of inflammatory diseases, but the first thing to go are the eyes. So it's one of those things where I mean, we've known like here I am, you know, I'm over 40, so I need my glasses. Um, but it's that piece like we know that eyesight is one of the first things to go as we age. And then we are able to reproduce it in a mouse. And for all those people who are biohacking, who are trying to figure out how to age less, you know, maybe it's going to be fecal transplant. And if we can't <laughs> do fecal transplant, maybe it's going to be postbiotics. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. All right. So my last question is just a silly question. I, you always had the best like supplement recommendations, the newest, coolest thing that's coming out. Do you have any favorites that you're using right now personally or recommending? I do. I do actually. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm testing new supplements all the time. Yeah. Um, and one of the ones that I've just started testing is called Armra, A-R-M-R-A. Have you heard of this one? It's Colossal. No, I haven't. Mm-mm. So it's, it's colostrum, colostrum. Uh-huh. So, um, breast milk essentially. Yeah. Um, but it's bovine colostrum. And so it has all of these different prebiotic factors in it. And the idea is for people who have had, um, big insults to their microbiome, um, you know, maybe they were on a course of antibiotics or many courses of antibiotics and they're really having gut issues. Um, can we fix it with a prebiotic? And so um, I've been starting with Armra and um, so far I really like it um, in terms of, it's a little tiny scoop, you're supposed to take it daily. Um, but in terms of a prebiotic, I find that I'm actually, I, I feel better with it. The other prebiotic food that I've been looking at is a product by Metagenics and it's called Phytogenics. And it is, a plant-based food that you can throw into a smoothie. Um, and it has dozens of different herbs and stuff in it. So, um, I have a family who is not as wed to vegetables as I am, but I can take this and I can throw it in their smoothie. And then I can be sure that they're getting all sorts of different variety of prebiotics and they don't actually have to eat a vegetable to do it. I'm told it's a texture thing, right? You know, <laughs> I've got 20 year old boys and sure, <laughs> you know, they, they will not eat a carrot. They will not eat a mushroom, but they will eat phytogenics if I put it in a smoothie. So, so those are the two that I'm, I'm working on right now. Awesome. I love that they're food-based. I oh, yeah. try to recommend anything food-based above synthetic. Agree. Completely agree. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, this was phenomenal. I'm so happy that I finally got to interview you and excited for all the changes that you're doing behind the scenes and happy to have you on that side. Well, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And thanks you everyone for listening. Um, Can you tell everyone where to find you and where to keep up with your research? Sure. So I am 
at hzwiki on Instagram. And then heatherswiki.com is my website. And Zwicky, there's not a lot of Zwickys out there, but let me spell <laughs> it for you. Z-W-I-C-K-E-Y. There you go. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Zwicky. You're welcome. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I am just so thrilled that you're listening to the Healer Revolution podcast. This has been a huge passion project for me and super therapeutic on top of that, helping me to use my voice and connect with other like-minded individuals. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please like and subscribe. Please share on social media or with your audience or friends or loved ones. I truly appreciate it. It does take a lot of time and financial costs to run the podcast, and it is not a moneymaker, let me tell you. So if you are enjoying this, I would truly appreciate your support just by sending me a post, a like, and a subscribe. Thank you so much.